nor be weary of nor be weary when reproved by him for the lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives it is for discipline that you have to endure god is treating you as sons for what son is there whom his father does not discipline so the lord disciplines those he Loves, okay? So here you see that discipline, which brings pain in the moment, is an expression of God's love. C.S. Lewis once said, The problem of reconciling human suffering with the existence of a God who loves is only insoluble so long as we attach trivial meaning to the word love. So how can God be loving and allow suffering in the world? That is only a problem if you have a trivial view of what love is. But if you have a biblical view of what love is, then you can make sense of it. God loves us too much to simply leave us where we are. That is reflected in the gospel. His love is a holy love. It's not just a sentimental love or a mushy love. It's a holy love. What's best for us is not always to get our way, but to have our way realigned With His way. That's what love is. So we understand this in things like parenting and education and coaching. When you coach a sports team, you can't just always say everything you're doing is right. Right? In parenting, in education, if you're teaching math, you can't, you know, 2 plus 2 is 5, and you can't just pat the child on the back and say, good job, keep going, I don't want to be unloving. No, we we correct. Yet, when we get to the issue of church discipline... Many throw that idea out as unloving, divisive, or unnecessary. So we love to talk about God's grace and God's mercy. We like Jesus as our Savior, but sometimes we struggle to embrace Him as our Lord, um, which means we have to deny ourselves if we're going to embrace Him as Lord. So no doubt there are, and I think even in this room, there are real stories of discipline being unnecessarily divisive and unloving, right? Churches can abuse and misuse discipline, and it could be divisive, and it can be unloving. But rather than throwing the church discipline out because of bad examples, we need to look at what the Bible says about church discipline. So we're going to look at a comprehensive, we're going to ask several questions to get basics of church discipline down. Okay, so let's look at the first question here. What is church discipline? Well, let's ask it this way. How many of you have been disciplined by a church before? Raise your hand. Just one? Okay, let me ask it another way. How many here have ever been taught anything when you were at a church gathering? How many of you have ever been taught anything when you were at a church gathering? Okay. Well, if you raise your hand for that, you have been disciplined. Church disciplined. Because... In one sense, church discipline is not only corrective, it is formative, okay? We're going to focus on corrective, but we just need to say this in the beginning, that there's a a sense of formative church discipline. I am disciplining my children, discipling my children. That can be, that's formative church discipline when you're, you're, you're teaching something. But there's not only formative church discipline, there's also corrective church discipline. And that's why not all of you raised your hands, because you're thinking, have I been corrected by a church. But even then, even in corrective church discipline, if you've ever been rebuked by another Christian in the church, guess what that is? Corrective church discipline, right? First go one-on-one, then two on two or three, 
and then you tell the church, and then you're excommunicated. So in one sense, all of those four steps are church, are church discipline, are corrective discipline. So in light of that, how many, how many of you have been correctively disciplined before at the church, by a church? I think all of us should hopefully be raising your hands unless um, you've been part of churches that would never, ever correct you. Okay, so this should be a normal part of the Christian's life. In our church, as our church grows in health, Lord willing, this should be more and more normal and regular in our church, where people are confessing our sins to each other when appropriate. We're living vulnerably and transparently and lovingly trying to help each other follow Jesus. It's important to start here because if this is not normal, if it's not normal to teach God's word and if it's not normal to correct one-on-one and two-on-one, then when we get to excommunication, this sounds really harsh and you don't have categories for it. If the culture of the church is not doing the smaller things regularly, then the bigger steps seem confusing and unloving. Okay, so um, so that's what we mean when we talk about church discipline. From here on out, we're going to talk about church discipline as corrective discipline and not only corrective discipline, but actually step four, excommunication. Okay, so I know that's confusing. Maybe I'll just stop calling it church discipline and just say excommunication so that we have clarity here. So let's first look at two important texts of Scripture. Matthew 18, verses 15 to 18. Can we have a volunteer read this loud enough so our brother Steve and Sister Marianne can hear as you read? Brandon, please read it. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Okay, so what's the process here? Somebody sins against another, what's step one? What's step one? Go talk to him alone, between you and him alone. Okay, don't don't gossip, don't slander, don't talk to anyone else, don't share it as a prayer request, mentioning that person's name to somebody else. Go to the person directly. Step two, if they don't listen... What's, take two or three, right? Take two or three with you. And by the way, there again, remember, two or three witnesses is not people who witness the sin. They're witnessing the conversation. Okay? Because not if it's, a, if it's a one-on-one sin, and I say something really mean to Steve, sinfully mean to Steve on our own, how is he going to take two or three if there was no one else there? He's just going to take John and, and Brandon with him to, to be there in the discussion. Okay? So that's two or three. If, he, if I don't list, let's say I actually am sinning, the reason why you take two or three is because the one confronting could actually be wrong as well, right? So if I, just because you're the confronter doesn't mean you're always right. So, and that's what, even when you take it to the church, the church could say, wait, the, con- the confronters are wrong, not the one being confronted. So, so you take two or three, they don't listen to two or three, then you do what? Step three is what? Tell it to the church. Does that mean the pastors? Does church mean pastors? What does the church? What does church mean? 
All the church, right? All the members of the church. Okay, so tell it to the church. And if he, and so now the church is trying to correct the person. If he doesn't listen to the church, then what? Step four? Excommunicate or treat him like an unbeliever or tax collector. Gently hand him over. Right? Okay, so that, that's treat him like an unbeliever. Now let's go to 1 Corinthians 5. On the inside of your notes here. 1 Corinthians 5. Let me read to you verses 1 and 2 before you get to 4 and 5. Actually, turn there in your Bible, because we're going to look at more than just those two verses. We're going to look at um, several verses in this chapter. 1 Corinthians 5, as the Brits say. 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 11, the whole chapter. Okay. Verse 1 says, It is widely reported that there is sexual immorality among you and the kind of sexual immorality that is not even tolerated among the Gentiles. A man is living with his dad's wife and you are inflated with pride instead of filled with grief so that he who has committed this might be removed from your congregation. What does Paul want them to do? Remove this person from what? From the church, from the congregation. Okay? Now you jump down to verse 4. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, with my spirit and with the power of the Lord Jesus, what are you supposed to do in verse 5? Turn this one over to who? Satan. Satan, for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And then jump down from there to verse 11. Verse 11 says, But now I am writing you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer, who is sexually immoral, or greedy, or an idolater, or verbally abusive, a drunkard, or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. For what business it is, my, it is of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside, but God judges outsiders. Put away the evil person from among yourselves, or purge the evil person from among you. So here, Paul doesn't tell them to warn the person, but actually to announce judgment. And treat this person no longer as a member of the church, but instead hand him over to who? To Satan for the destruction of his flesh, right? So Paul even calls it in verse 12 an act of judgment. He says, we're not judging outsiders, we're judging those who are inside. So this is judgment. So let me give you a definition of church discipline. Okay, you might want to write this down, maybe. Definition of church discipline. Church discipline is the act of excluding someone, or the, the act of excluding a professing Christian. Let's say it that way. The act of excluding a professing Christian from church membership and participation in the Lord's Supper. Okay? What is... Excommunication, church discipline in this regard, excluding some professing Christian from church membership and participation in the Lord's Supper for serious unrepentant sin. For serious unrepentant sin. Okay? And that's sin that they refuse to let go of. So, excluding a professing Christian from church membership and the Lord's Supper for unrepentant, for serious unrepentant sin. Okay? 
That is the definition of church discipline. As far as the definition goes. Questions or comments? Because Steve and then Brandon. Do I still hold that you can't sit down and have a meal? Right. Um, oh, here it is, the back page. How do we interact with someone who has been disciplined? We'll get to that in a second. I'll, I'll teach you the truth. I will discipline you with the church. With, with I'll, I'll church discipline you with teaching in a in a second. Formative church discipline. <laughs> Brandon. Okay. Yeah. And we'll get to that in a second. Thank you for pointing that out. Ken? Oh, we'll get to that. I'll bring it up later. You'll just say it and we'll... Well, when it says you can't eat with them, would that mean not have communion with them? Okay. So, yeah, we'll get to that in a second. But, yeah, just throw it out there so we so that it, it locks in my mind as something to make sure to underline. Okay, let's go to the next point. Why should a church discipline? Should we discipline? Should we excommunicate? Yes or no? Yes. Yes? Okay. Okay, now why? Without looking at your notes, look up for a second. Just, you, brains, you know. Exposed. <laughs> <laughs> why else? To warn. To warn. <laughs> to repent? Oh, so that they could repent. Yeah, that's good. And that's not there. That's good in your own words. Good. What else? For church holiness. For church holiness. Okay, so so keep our taking sin serious, so everyone takes sin seriously. So as not to contaminate. Yeah, to not let it spread and contaminate others. Yeah, great. What else? Accountability. Accountability. I was gonna say you can also save marriages. Save marriages, yeah. Save the the other people involved in the discipline situation. It can and has, sure. Evangelism and a testimony to non-Christians. Clarity of what and who the church is. Good. Last one that I might think of is for whose glory? To glorify God, right? That's always the ultimate reason for everything, but it should be said to glorify God. Okay, well, let's look at five purposes here. You said other ones that aren't here. But these are all from 1 Corinthians 5, okay? So number one, to expose sin. If you're taking notes, to expose sin. Sin grows in the dark and discipline exposes it for what it might be, so that it might be removed. For what it is and so that it might be removed. Okay, so why do church discipline to expose sin? Because sin thrives in darkness and is choked in the light. Okay, sin is choked out. Temptation is weaker when there's more light on it. Okay, that doesn't mean it's it could never happen. It's just harder. That's why more crimes happen at night and in the, than in the daytime because you're less likely to get caught, among other things. That's also true in our own lives. The more secrecy, the more power to our sins. The more you expose your sin and temptations and weaknesses, the, the weaker it gets. Again, that doesn't take care of everything, but it does help. Okay, that's number one. Number two, and that's from 1 Corinthians 5.2. 1 Corinthians 5.2 says, You're inflated with pride. Instead, you, are, you should be filled with grief so that he who had committed this act might be removed from your congregation. So, in removing them, you're exposing the sin. Number two, to warn. This is from verse 5. In verse 5, 
It says, turn that one over to Satan. That's a strong warning. We're handing you over to Satan. That is not a small thing. That, that's a strong warning where you're telling the person, we're not, again, enacting judgment, but it's a judgment to say, it's a small picture of judgment to say, if you continue in unrepentant sin, you might find yourself not really being a true Christian. And so our small act of judgment is a dim, small picture of a future act of God's judgment if you are really not a Christian, as might be evidenced by your lack of repentance. So it's a strong warning from a whole church body to a Christian, to a professing Christian. Number three, so that's to warn. Number four, number three, to save. Look at verse five again. Turn that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that what? So that his spirit may be saved in the day of judgment. So the aim, the goal, is so that the spirit might be saved. Because remember, church discipline is not unloving, it's loving. We want to save people, right? We want them to be saved. We don't want them to be unsaved. And that's why we do it, okay, to save them. That's what the word save means. So yes... I should unhang you, huh? Okay. So, there's initial salvation and final salvation. We have, but it's okay. Initial salvation and final salvation. Remember in 1 Corinthians 9 and 10, in two different parts, Paul says, To the Jew I became like a Jew, to win the Jews. To those who are not like the Jews, I became like, well, not like the Jews, to win those not like the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. To those outside the law, I became like one outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, so that I became all things to all people, so that by all means necessary, I might save some. By the way, that's, I like the, the fact that Paul says he saves. A lot of people say, well, God's the only one who saves, not you. Well, Paul says he saves. Not that he replaces Jesus, but we, ha- we have to have room to say, I'm saving somebody. Because Paul is saying that. So you are an instrument of salvation to other people. You ought to be. Okay, but anyways, that's, I'm digressing. Point here is, he's not only saving the Jews and those outside the law, even the weak. Who are the weak in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10? The weak are what? Weaker brothers. Are they already saved? Are they already Christians? Yes. But he's trying to save them. What is he talking about? He's not talking about initial salvation. He's talking about final salvation. Because those who are initially saved will endure in faith and repentance to final salvation. And if they don't endure to final salvation, that proves that they were never initially saved. So what we do to to professing Christians, what we do in this church, is we work towards towards each other's final salvation. We're not saved by works. We keep applying and gospelizing each other that we might endure by faith. Okay? So, so, but if you're excommunicating a, non, a, a professing Christian, they might never have been saved. If they're never saved and they repent and trust in Christ, they have just become initially saved and now they're going through the process. If they really were truly saved initially 10 years ago and they got stuck in the sin and they don't repent and then they come back, you restore them to the church and now they continue with their endurance to final salvation. Either way, you're doing it so that they might be finally saved. Okay? So that's number three, to save. Number four is to protect. To protect. Why, why do excommunication to protect? And this is what Marianne said from verse six. 
Don't you know that a little yeast permeates the whole batch of dough? Or little leaven leavens the whole lump? So it spreads and it contaminates the whole. So to protect the church, we practice, we ought to practice excommunication because when sin goes unchecked, it spreads throughout the church. That's not, it's not saying that it might spread, it will spread. Okay, that, that's exactly, what it means to be made in the image of God is that we all influence each other. So if sin goes unchecked, it always has consequences. It will spread through the church to some degree, okay? And so we, we, we excommunicate and we do church discipline to protect. And lastly, here, number five, this is what Bethany was getting at, to preserve the church's witness. To preserve the church's witness. Remember in chapter five, verse one, Paul says that not even the pagans tolerate a man sleeping with his dad's wife. What kind of testimony are we saying to the pagan world when we're tolerating in the church sin that they won't even tolerate? Okay, so it's to preserve the church's witness as the body of Christ. Five reasons why we practice church discipline. Next question. What sins require church discipline? I struggle with this a little bit, but let's just go with what, what's here because this is helpful and they've thought through it more than I have. So, rather than making a list, what is the master list of sins that you cannot commit at First Southern Baptist Church of Bellflower? Because if you... If you violate the one on the list, you're going to be disciplined. Rather than doing that, it's better to draw principles from Scripture to guide us. So, in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul calls the church to make a judgment. Look at verse 12. He's saying, judge those. Um, we judge, we're judging those who are inside. So, in other words, the church has to make a judgment. We have to weigh the evidence, think about the case, and come up with a conclusion. A judgment. As a church, and that's why we would discuss it in a business meeting, and then we would vote together as a church based on the discussion. Because God sees and knows everything, right? God sees the heart. Now, can we see everyone's heart and soul? No. Our perspective is limited. As a result, the Bible tells us, as a church, to not try to read people's hearts, because we can't, but to look at the outside fruit in someone's life. So our assessment of someone is never an omniscient assessment. We're not saying we can read your heart and know. All we can see is the outside. So as a result, church discipline is for sins that are outward, serious, and unrepentant. Not for every sin. So, for example, with outward. We, we, we cannot, it would be unwise for a church to discipline someone, excommunicate someone, who they suspect is greedy. We're excommunicating you for greed. It says here, doesn't it say greedy isn't greedy on the list? So you're saying, well, but yes, but you're not, you're, we can't just say, I could read your heart and I know you're greedy. I could see it in your eyes. They're a little green, right? No, that's not. How do you know they're greedy? You're going to know by actual outward acts. They have stolen something, right? Or something, there's, there has to be an outward expression of the inward sin or else we can't discipline on it. Well, we're going to excommunicate that guy for pride. Why do you see, where do you see pride? If there is pride, there's going to be an expression of it outward. What is the outward expression? If it's not outward, you don't discipline for it. Okay? And that's also true of rebuke. Um, I'm tempted to go into marriage counseling here, but we'll save that for Sunday mornings. Number two, serious. So not only outward, but serious. There needs to be a place in the life's church, in the life of the church, where love covers a multitude of sins. That doesn't mean we belittle sin and say it's not a big deal, but we do bear with one another 
in our sins. So it's serious sins. Now, well, what is serious? Again, that's a judgment call that pastors and church members and the church as a whole have to decipher given it case by case. Okay? Number three is unrepentant. And this one's clear. Jesus said in Matthew 18, if, if they listen, you've won the brother. If they don't listen, you go to the next step. And so if they refuse to listen to the church, then they are unrepentant. And if the person is unrepentant, then that's the heart of the issue. And that's, that's why we're excommunicating, because Christians repent. Christians believe and repent. I think I said this on a Wednesday, so I'll say it here tonight. Repentance and faith are like the inhaling and exhaling of the Christian life. It's like breathing. What do we inhale? I mean, like literally, what do we inhale? Oxygen or carbon dioxide? Oxygen. What do we exhale? Carbon dioxide, right? And so think of, now obviously we have to get the carbon dioxide out of our respiratory system, so it goes out, we take in oxygen, right? And so it's the same thing. Faith is taking in God and His glory, Exhaling is repenting and getting what out of our lives? Sin. Okay? You take in more of God's grace, you push out sin. Inhale grace, exhale sin. Inhale grace, exhale sin. So in other words, repentance and faith is the breathing of the Christian life. If you find someone who's not breathing, what is your conclusion? They are what? Dead. Dead. If a Christian is not breathing, there is no inhaling of God's grace in faith. There is no exhaling of sin in repentance, especially when they're confronted by one and then two and three and then a whole church for months on end and there's just no breathing. We're going to say, as best we can tell, this person looks like they're dead. And so we're going to treat them like an unbeliever at that point, even though that person's still saying, I'm a Christian. I'm professing to be a Christian. Don't tell me I'm not a Christian. Well, we're telling you that you're not breathing and so therefore we must put you out. Okay? Put you out of the church, not... Put you out in period. Okay. Um, so those are the sins that you're excommunicating for. Outward, serious, and unrepentant. Okay? Let's go to number... Or, uh, there are no numbers on this, right? So let's go to the next question. Who should lead the process? Anyone? Want to guess? The church. The church? Any leaders in the church? Of church discipline, of the church excommunicating someone. Okay, yeah, pastors and leaders, yes. Obviously, ultimately, the church is going to make the decision. But I think the the pastors and leaders should be pastors and deacons, but generally the pastors. And it's best if you have a plurality of pastors and not just one. I would actually recommend, it's almost always, almost, it's almost always unwise for a solo pastor to lead a church in excommunication. Um, as a single pastor, because all the brunt falls on you, and if there's a controversy, it's almost always going to end bad. Unless you have a really well-taught church, then you can do it. But that's rare. Okay, but anyways, here's the point is, who should lead the process? Well, um, two, two basic ideas, and then I'll tell you what the role of the church is. Two basic ideas here. Number one, in terms of the process, is it should include as few people as possible, right? Include as few people as possible in the process of church discipline. So if it, if it could be one-on-one and it stops there, it stops there, praise God. If it goes to two or three and it stops there, praise God. You want to involve only those who are needed to process the situation. Because you want to protect the reputation of Christ and the church, and you want to protect the person you're pursuing. So as few people as possible. And the second principle here, in terms of a basic idea, is church leaders should lead in the process. 
Turn to Galatians 6.1. Galatians 6.1. It's right after Corinthians. So you go 1st, 2nd Corinthians and Galatians. Can we get a volunteer to read Galatians 6.1? My question is, who should restore someone caught in a transgression or wrongdoing? Volunteer to read it? Go ahead, Ken. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritually spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Okay. Thank you. So on that first verse, those who are caught in transgression or sin, who is supposed to restore them? You who are spiritual. spiritual. So the spiritually mature in the church. Now that doesn't mean only pastors, but if you have pastors who aren't spiritually mature, you don't. You should not let them be pastors, right? I mean, that's one of the qualifications for being a pastor. First Timothy three and Titus one is spiritual maturity. So um, obviously the pastors, pastors slash elders slash overseers, all the same role. They should be leading it, but that doesn't mean they're the only spiritual ones in the church, but they should be in the process, especially when you start getting to church-wide discussions on it. 1 Peter 5.2 says that shepherds are to exercise oversight over the flock, and so that's part of what a pastor's job is. So what role should members play? Let me see if I have it here. What role should members play? Four things. So that's the next one. What is the job of the church member then? If the pastors are to lead the process... What's the job of the church member? Number one, strive to live vulnerable and transparent lives. Strive to live vulnerable and transparent lives, speaking the truth to one another in love. Okay, Live a vulnerable, transparent life, speaking the truth in love to each other. If you, if you do that as a church member, you are doing a great, great service to making this a healthy church. Okay? You confessing your sins uninitiated, you asking people how they're doing, you speaking the truth in love, you being vulnerable and not really worrying about what other people think because what is, what is it? God is gracious so you don't have to prove yourself, right? That's the good news. So you don't worry about what others are going to think. You know God accepts you in Christ and you can just be vulnerable and open in ways that are edifying. Okay, that's number one. Number two, job of the church member in this regard is give information to the elders. Give information to the elders and pastors at the right time. Not too soon. If it's one-on-one, just go one-on-one. But at the right time, give the information to the pastors and elders. If they're responsible to teach and lead, then they need to know. And they might actually have a better overall picture of what's going on. A lot of times, I could say this as a pastor over the years, you have a member stumble onto a process that you're already dealing with. So, you know, me and a leadership team or pastors are working through an issue. A church member finds out about it and they come up and say, Pastor, you know, I talked to this person. We need to work on this. And I'm saying, hey, thank you for telling me. We've actually been working on it for three months already. You know, and that's okay. That's great. That's a healthy church. Number three, your third job is to plead with the person in sin if you have an existing relationship with them. Plead with them. Plead with them to repent. Okay. Um, here they say, I don't know if I agree with this, this is Capitol Hill Baptist Church on this point, is if you don't know them already, it's probably not the best time to start that friendship. I mean, they have a thousand people, I mean, just literally about a thousand members. So it could seem that way. In a smaller church, I think you should just start friendships with everyone who's a member. 
Um, you know, you should have an exist. You should try and strive as much as possible to have a, an existing relationship with every other member, if you could. And I think even in a discipline process, I don't think it's a bad time to to pursue them. I think of it just like evangelism. Like sometimes we do cold turkey evangelism with people we don't know. Why not with our own church family that we might not know? Okay, um, maybe I'm speaking in my youthful ignorance. Number four, pray. If someone's in the process of church discipline, pray for them. Pray for their repentance. Pray that God would use church members. Pray for God to move. Okay, next question. Are there any questions so far? Questions or thoughts? Bethany. What if someone's sitting um, in their, a different church? Like, how would you go about it? Okay. If someone's in a different church and they're sitting, how, what would you do? How would you go about it? Any... Any wisdom here? Any ideas from you, brothers and sisters? You, you, um, you see or an, a, a brother or sister from another church sins against you. What should you do? Yeah. Ken and then Steve. You should use the same process. If you, uh, if you know them, I mean, you know them and they've sinned against you, you go to them and you ask them for Okay, that's step one. If that doesn't work, then? I would get two, or two people that both you and they know. Okay. Maybe somebody from their church. Or maybe somebody. Okay, so that's step two. Then if that doesn't work, then what? Now here's where it gets tricky. Now what do you do? I think it's up to their church to do the disciplining. So maybe just contact their pastor and let him know. Yeah, and I think that, that's where you go next. Yeah. I think that that's where I, you agree, Steve. Yeah. yeah, and that's yeah. You, you yeah, at least from your side, that's all you can do. Don't handle it. Yeah, we did that in our church in L.A. We had a church member. We had a, I had a pastor from another church call me about one of my members who was in sin. And I was shocked. I was like, no, that's not true. But let me find out. So I started pulling on that thread, and it was absolutely true. And it was, it was quite traumatic for, for our church in L.A. But, I mean, God got us through that. But it, it came out from actually another church and another person that our member was sinning against. And it was completely not tied to our church. But, yeah. So the pastor came to, to me. And the pastor actually thought I already knew. And thought I was covering it up. And I was like, wait, what? You know, I don't know what's going on. So, um, yeah, you, you go to them. And if the churches, if the pastors are hopefully being faithful and it's a healthy church, then they'll deal with it. But like Steve said, the vast majority of churches, it's going to stop there. And that's all you can do. You, you, you leave it there. Okay, good question. Um, next question here. How quickly should a church act? How quickly should we excommunicate someone? They sin today. How quickly should we act? Next week? Boom. Special call business meeting. Two weeks. We, have, we need two weeks of announcements. So we, we'll excommunicate them in two weeks? Is that good, Steve? We have to call the process. Okay. Find out what the person uh, so one month? So one month. How long it takes. Okay. Yeah. If this is something like in this case in Corinthians, that was public knowledge. 
Right, and so that, that's the question I was going to raise, and I want you to comment back on this. So in 1 Corinthians 5, it looks like it's pretty quick. When you read Matthew 18, it looks like one-on-one, two or three, then the church, then excommunicate. How would you, I mean, is Paul contradicting Jesus? Well, no, you've you got two different situations. Okay. You've got personal offenses in Matthew, and uh, you have um, uh, moral, spiritual offenses against the church itself. Corinthians. So, so, I mean, you're showing the principles by using Matthew, how things are done, but you got two different, it's like comparing apples to oranges. Right. And to, to build on that, I, I want to go back to your earlier comment that by the time of 1 Corinthians 5, it's already public knowledge. Right? And that's, that's almost like the third step of church discipline in the Matthew process. One on one, two or three, and then you tell the whole church. Now it's public to the church. And then you move to excommunication. In 1 Corinthians 5, it's already public knowledge. Maybe not through the proper application, but it's already public by now. So you're already essentially on step three. You know? And so, um, so yeah, it's not a contradiction between the two. I just bring that up because some people say, well, sometimes you have to move fast. I would say the, the general principle is slow is almost always better than fast. Almost always, because you want to make sure you're doing it right and not just being hasty with saying, let's get this guy out of here. We've got to be obedient. We do want to be obedient. But you want to make sure that there's care and there's the right application of things to the situation. Ken? Do you necessarily want to, you know, like, quote, unquote, get him out of here? Or would you want to try to shepherd him and let him Good question, and we're going to cover that on the next on the next page. So we'll come back to that. Okay, one more verse to, to make it more confusing. Titus 3.10. Listen to Titus 3.10. This is under how quickly should we act, in case you want to look at this later. Titus 3.10. So we're looking at Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, and Titus 3.10. Titus 3.10 says this. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Okay, that's... Another confusing, okay, how do we reconcile that? You warn him once and then twice and then what? Have nothing more to do with him. So in Matthew, so, okay, no, now in Matthew, in Matthew you have three, you have four steps, right? So there's three stages and the fourth is out. Here it's step one, step two, and then you're out in Titus. And then in 1 Corinthians 5, it looks like it's, there's no steps. You go straight to excommunication. Here's the point. Paul's urgency seems to reflect his concern to protect the church, and the determining factor is really weighed out by the church going through the whole process. In other words, don't... we got to take all of it, and it's always case by case, which is why you need pastoral wisdom and a plurality of pastors and leaders, and then the church's wisdom on that third and fourth step of church discipline. Okay? So how quickly should we act? Don't rush it, but you want to just make sure you're moving along in terms of biblical priority and really trying to secure their repentance. Next one is, can a preemptive resignation avert discipline? So I want everyone to say yes or no here. What do I mean by this? Let's say a church member, let's say our church is healthy already. We have, our membership roles are exactly what our members are and we're practicing church discipline in our church. And everyone knows that. Let's say everyone gets it. Then we have one of our members who starts committing adultery. They know that the pastors are already on the case. They're trying to restore this person. And this person knows that they don't want to stop committing adultery. And they know where this is going. This is a healthy church. They have nowhere to run. They're going to, they either give up the relationship or they get excommunicated. So what they do is they say, you know what? I'm resigning my membership. 
I'm no longer a member of the church. I resign my membership. So here's the question. Can a preemptive resignation avert excommunication? I want you to say yes or no, starting with Chris. No. It's okay to guess. No, this person's saying, I'm resigning. You can't resign. So you're saying no, then? Yeah, okay, I'm going to okay. say no based on that. Right, because he's saying, well, I'm not a member anymore, you can't excommunicate me. You voted in, you voted out. Well, I, I, I resigned my membership on my own. I'm withdrawing my own membership. He doesn't take him out of the body, he doesn't have that authority. Okay. So no. Okay, so you say no. Based on that qualification, thank you. Marianne? Yeah. Probably no. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Ken? Yes. Yes, yes, it does stop it. Okay. No, no, no. Yes. Yes. What? Yes, it does not avert. <laughs> That's a no. That's a no thing. No, it does not avert. Or yes, it does not avert. What was your first question? My question is right here. My question is right here. Can a preemptive resignation avert discipline? No. Okay. No. Thank you. That's what I thought you meant. Cindy, guess. Yes. Okay. Brandon, no. John, no. Okay. Now, Cindy, do you want to say why you think yes? Um, because we turned him over to Satan. Okay. Well, that would actually be the discipline, right? Yeah. yeah so, so in that sense, it would be a no, but yeah. Because we, we still, and I think all of us are getting to the same point here, which is basically, um, and I think Steve is actually getting at the exact point, is we don't have the authority to join the church on our own. We don't have the authority to remove ourselves on our own. The church, as the church exercises the keys of the kingdom. The members of the church, you get to exercise the keys, but not by yourself. We exercised the keys this morning, right? We took in two members. As a church family, we have just obeyed Matthew 16 and 18. We have bound two more Christians to our church family. That's, that's exercising the keys. But not one of us did it on our own. It was all of us as a church. So, yes, you, um, you cannot preemptively resign in a healthy church. In an unhealthy church... I mean, all bets are off in some ways because you just got to survive. You can't loose yourself. You cannot loose yourself from the body. The church must loose you. Yeah, luo. <laughs> okay. Um, you thought we'd never use that word after learning it in Greek, huh? So, um, let's go to the back page. Now, this is getting at what Ken and Steve brought up earlier. Back page. How do we interact with someone who has been excommunicated? 1 Corinthians 5.11, the verse is right there in your notes. I'm writing to you not to what? Associate. Associate with anyone. And then the very end of the verse, not even to what? Not even to eat with such a one. So how do we make sense of this? Three thoughts here. You have three little blanks there. Number one, um, this doesn't mean you physically exclude the person from attending church, a church gathering. This does not mean you physically remove the person from attending a church gathering. That's number one. Of the three, yeah. So we want them to attend. Because it's not a business meeting. It's not a members meeting. It's an open public meeting. We had non-Christians in our meeting this morning. Right? Our Sunday night is an open meeting. We want non-Christians here because we want them to hear the gospel. Faith comes by hearing the word of Christ. So we want them to hear. And if they're excommunicated, we want them to hear as well. And so we are not physically removing them in most circumstances. Okay? We are barring them from the Lord's Supper, which is intended to mark off those who are repenting from their sins and trusting Christ. 
But the church's gathering is an opportunity for them to sit under God's word. And so in most circumstances, we let them. Very rarely, there might be extreme circumstances if there are physical danger, if there's a threat to someone, something like that, then, then that might be, a, that's an exception though. The general rule is don't physically remove them from attending. Invite them to attend. Number two, when Paul says don't even eat with such a one, um, he's not saying we should avoid our non-Christian friends. So number two is um, not eating does not, me- does not equal avoiding them. Okay, far from it. He wants us to pursue them. But what does eating communicate? What does eating, what does sharing a meal with someone communicate? Fellowship, Fellowship. partnership. Fellowship is partnership. Friendship, right? Reconciled relationship, generally. Okay, so sharing a meal, love compels us to not act as if everything's okay. When you share a meal with someone, you're okay with them. You, you almost never share a meal with someone you're not okay with. Like, uh, family, obviously, if you're married, you might have to, which is a blessing from God, by the way. But, Ken? Uh, what did the Pharisees say about Jesus when he went in to eat with sinners, tax collectors? Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Ken. Yeah, that's Mark chapter 2. What it, Mark chapter 2, verses 13 to 17, is that passage? Yes. He ate with tax collectors and sinners. But Paul, listen, he's not saying, look at verse, are you in 1 Corinthians 5? You're not even there, huh? Verse, 1 Corinthians 5, 10, he's saying, I don't mean the immoral people of this world, but those who profess to be what? A believer. Those who call themselves a brother. So none of those that Jesus was eating with were calling themselves believers. Ah, read the verses. Aha. Uh-huh. Uh huh. <laughs> Go ahead, brother. <laughs> this is the way I interpret this, okay? And based on context, what I read is the context. You talk to them as a church, as a body. You tell them as a body, don't associate with them. In other words, in the church, don't eat with them pertaining to the Lord's Supper. So, um, that's what you're removing from them. You're removing their membership, their right to vote, and to participate in the Lord's table. I agree with those. Uh, and so he's telling them not to associate with them in church capacity, not as a friend, and not as what you're saying, where, where you couldn't go out and have a hamburger with them. And if you do that, you're not condoning what they're doing. Uh, you may do that, get together with someone in a neutral place, um, to be a witness to them. I think when you completely separate yourself from them that way, you can't really be the kind of witness that you want to admonish them and express your love for them, that we want you to come back, we want you to, to stop living in this lifestyle. Okay. okay. I hear you. And then also, also uh, we've talked about this, for Second Thessalonians uh, 3, 14 and 15. Mm-hmm. I know you got to come back to this, but... I will, I will state my case, Your Honor. Go ahead. <laughs> um, well, let's see. If anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person, and do not keep company with him, that he may be ashamed. Yet do not commit him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Yeah. So I think it, 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 and I think that's in church, when he says don't keep company with him, he's talking about in church capacity and 
context, context, he's addressing a local church there. Same as First Corinthians, he's addressing a local church as a church body, okay, as a local body, right? And uh, I've been teaching this for 40 years, brother, so I'm not going to change my conviction on that. I'm just going to try to sway brother. those who may not have. To my, to my view, which is the truth. Okay. Well, I'm not discouraged. I will. I will work on your view. I, you will change, Lord willing. What's that? Like an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Okay. So if you won't have anything to do with them at all, you treat them as an enemy. Well, okay. Not having anything to do with them at all is not the same thing as not eating with them. You're equating not eating with them as not having anything to do with them. Those are not the same thing. You can meet with them to rebuke them and call them to repentance. You can meet with them to call them to repentance and check in on them. Okay, but uh, just briefly, Brandon, just because we've experienced this in our previous church, you know, four times, any response to Steve? That, that you, or do you agree with Steve? No. Uh, in, in Crossview, one of the things we were told was we can get together with them, but uh, but we, we can't eat with them. Uh, and you can tell them that, and, and that's I guess to me it's it's a it's a visual it's like a it's like a like a like a sign or a banner. You're basically telling them you're reminding them that they're not okay. Mm-hmm. I guess by right. by saying I can't eat with you. It's like another reminder that they're not okay. They they still need to repent. Yeah. But if if you're eating with them, it's it's almost like you're. It's like there's you don't have the the, the same witness. Like you're minimizing, maybe, or you're, you're kind of minimize. You might be minimizing their sin if you if you eat with them. But if you say I'm not going to eat with you, but we can still do something else. You're reminding them again that they are not right with God and they still need to repent. Ken, last thought before I jump in and we'll move on. Okay, so uh, if you have a, a brother in the church that that is sinning and uh, come to the position that maybe he wasn't originally saving. Yeah. Maybe he, he is sinning because he wasn't originally... Uh, initially saved, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As soon as the yeah. comes into the church, if they're still professing to be a believer, you can't. I mean, he's saying to those who are, if they if they call themselves brothers. But verse ten says, if they're of the world, of course I'm not saying that. So yeah, if someone's prof- that's a good point. If someone's professing to be a believer, they're under excommunication, and then they publicly renounce their faith as a Christian, they are no longer under that excommunication. Specifically the members of that church, because they're the ones who know. But if I knew one of my friends was excommunicated righteously from their church, I would not eat with them. I would call them to repentance, as my because they're my friend. Remember how high the stakes are here, okay? These are not small stakes when someone's excommunicated. We are handing them over to who? Satan. Satan. For the destruction of their flesh, so that their soul might be saved. These are not small little stakes of like, you know, playing games of like, you know, oh, I hope I could convince them. We're talking about life and death, heaven and hell 
Right? We're talking about trying to work for their final salvation. When the stakes are that high, we, 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 we don't do well to minimize what's going on in the situation. If they think they're okay with God, and they're still, they're still continuing to sleep with their dad's wife, which is so clearly forbidden in Scripture, and they think they're going to heaven when they die, I, as their friend, want to communicate as clearly as possible the peril that their soul is in. Eating with them does not communicate the peril. It miscommunicates the peril. It does minimize it because it does say, in a sense, you're okay. That's the first thing I'd say. The second thing I would say is when you read verse 11 and it says, do not even eat with such a one. I mean, again, it's just my conscience. I can't read that verse. I can't be eating with such a one and saying, oh, well, it doesn't mean I can't eat with such a one in this non-church setting, even though it says right there, I can't eat with such a one. I just, the words, I don't think you can get around the words. It's not just saying the Lord's Supper. He doesn't say, just don't take the Lord's Supper. He says, don't eat with them. I mean, that's what he says. So I'm just, those are the very words of the text. I, in 1 Corinthians 5.11, I can't get around what Paul's actually saying there. And I mean, and we've seen it in our church. You know, we, we have seen it. Where, you know, when one of our members who was restored, was going to be restored, we met up with them at McDonald's, and we were eating with our kids there in the play place, and I said, oh, do you want some food? Do you want some fries? Because we had some fries right there. And the person went like that, like, you know, the, the excommunicated member was like, like, looked at me like, like I was crazy that I offered fries. And it was almost like, wait, don't you remember I'm excommunicated? And I was like, oh yeah, I'm so sorry. Yeah, uh, you can't have fries. But yeah, let's, but this person was in the process and, you know, two weeks later, this person was restored. So, but at that point, it was like, you're not restored yet. I can't eat with you. This is, this is priority number one, two, three, and four in your life. And anything I do to minimize how much a priority this repentance is in your life does you a disservice in terms of the seriousness of it. Uh, one more example, and then I'll give Steve the final word before we go to number three and the last thing here. Okay, before we get there, what, I'll, I'll tell you a practical thing right now. One of, our, one of our members that was excommunicated is a family member of mine. Not in my immediate family, but like, you know, a cousin. And they're at family parties. So I told, you know, because I do believe I can't eat with them, I told them last year during Christmas, I said, hey, are you going to come to the family party? Because if you are, if you're not repentant yet, I, I, first of all, are you repentant? If you're not, I can't, I won't leave my family to just be there hanging out with you. And I won't, I'll miss the family party, um, which is which I'm okay doing. Just let me know if you're not repentant, number one, and two, you're coming. Um, and I, I actually sent the same message this year to, to this family member just to, just to check in. Hey, have you repented? Because I hope you have. You know, I'm still hoping that you have. And if you haven't, then um, i got to figure out how I'm going to keep obeying 1 Corinthians 5.11 for your sake. So that's another illustration. Steve, Question. I wouldn't. What if, let's take that a step farther. Um, If it's an actual member of your immediate family. Yes. That's a good question. I'm not saying yes, I would. Right. That's actually number three. One of your grown children that that is saved. What are you going to do then? Right. That's number three here. I'll read it specifically word for word from the notes. Here's what it says. What if the excommunicated person is a family member? I don't think Paul's words apply in that situation. Just as Peter and Paul have a category for living with an unbelieving spouse, 1 Peter 3, 1 Corinthians 7, 
A shared meal with a spouse does not have the same implication of a shared meal between friends. Because between friends, you have the option of eating with each other or not. In, a, in the household, it's, it doesn't, it's not communicating the same thing that it does between friends. Okay, so, for, so there, the short answer is it doesn't apply there. You can and should eat with your spouse. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, but I wouldn't just tell them that. Again, it's not, you're not trying to guilt trip them. You love them and you want to restore them, right? So I'm first going to say, hey, hey um, Bill, have you repented from sleeping with your dad's wife? Are you ready to turn? Has God opened your eyes yet? Have you given up on that relationship? Are you, gonna, are you ready to come back to the Lord? Ah, PJ, I've been thinking about it. I go back and forth, but I'm just not quite ready yet. Okay. Well, we're going to keep praying for you as a church, but you can't come to the meal because you're not ready yet. But as soon as you're ready, let me know, because we can't wait to reconcile and be in fellowship together again. And if there's any way I can help you to think through that, just know I'm praying for you, our church is praying for you, and we want to share a meal with you again. We want to share fellowship with you again. We want to celebrate your repentance. So that's what I would say. I wouldn't just say, hey, you know, you're, on, you're not on the list or you're on the blacklist here. You can't come in. That's not how I would do it. Again, the goal being restoration. Okay, last thing here. When and how do we restore from some, someone from discipline? Notice there in, in verse 5 or in verse 6. I'm just going to go straight to verse 6. Uh, for, for such a one, the punishment by the majority is enough. So the discipline was enough so that you should rather turn and forgive and comfort him. So this person is repentant. So you turn and forgive and comfort them. Verse 9. Oh, verse, nine, or verse 8 says, I beg you to reaffirm your what for him? Your love for him. So if someone repents, you restore them right away. You, you, you know, we call a special called business meeting. So in our church, with our bylaws, you'd actually have to wait two weeks. But as soon as a member is repentant, in our current bylaws, we would announce a special called business meeting, one week, two weeks. We'd have the special called business meeting as soon as possible. There's no, there's no pleasure in, in, in drawing this out. All we're trying to get is their repentance. And as soon as you get that, you, you're ready to party. We're ready to celebrate. Uh, we might even have a special lunch after the, the members meeting just to, just to eat together to reaffirm you know, actually that we did that in our church. We had, we had lunches every Sunday in our church. And this person had, we, this person, um, repented in front of the whole church at lunch after the, the, the church meeting. And everyone brought like a plate <laughs> to the person like, here, eat with us. You know, like we, we can't wait to eat with you. And so it was just a, a sweet time of celebration and restoration. Okay. That's so, so here you see that um, there are times, whether individually or corporately, forgiveness is costly or difficult, but we need to forgive lest... Notice in verse 11, why do we restore right away? So that we would not be outwitted by who? Satan. So Satan wants churches to not discipline. And then when a church disciplines, you know what Satan wants them to do? Be harsh. He wants to go the other way, right? He just wants to get you off of the middle. So, so don't do discipline. It's wrong. It's mean. Oh, you're doing it? Well, then go hard. And, and don't ever let them back and, you know, teach them a lesson that they'll never forget. You know, Satan is tricky. He's not, he just doesn't have one trap for us. And so 
as soon as they're repentant, you restore them right away so that you're not outwitted by Satan. Because Satan can even capture a self-righteous church that's excommunicating out of self-righteousness and not out of love and the goal of restoration. Okay, so the hope is that hopefully with our church, we can be more careful with our church membership of those we're taking in. Hopefully we, we could clean our church membership role. Eventually we can practice church discipline um, where, we're not, where, we are, where we're helping each other persevere to final salvation and representing as a church body to the watching world, who is Christ's body? What is the gospel? What does it mean that God loves us? We as a church want to be a display of that to Bellflower and Southeast LA County. Okay? Any closing questions or thoughts? Uh, we have to. Would that bring a what? Um, you know, I've thought about that. I don't, I don't think so, but it would be, I would rebuke, I would rebuke publicly, probably for it. And I would reiterate what the Bible, I would just teach again what the Bible says. Sure. And you could disagree with my public rebuke, but I would still, I would still teach it publicly. I would still say, like, let's say you did that. I might say at a church business meeting, just a reminder, 1 Corinthians 5.11 says this. And what it means is this. And if you are not doing this, you're disobeying the Lord. I would just say it. You could disagree with me, but I have a job as a pastor to, to publicly say what... I, that's my job, is to faithfully teach the Word and then let the members do what they want with what's being taught. You know, so that's, I think that's how I'd handle it. Again, if we had a plurality of pastors, let's say we had three pastor elders in our church and I was outnumbered two to one, I wouldn't say anything. Just in terms of the unity of the pastoral eldership. Um, and that's why we need a plurality of pastor elders, so that the idiosyncrasies of one pastor doesn't dominate the whole church. You know, So I, I mean, I readily admit that. I don't want to be the only pastor here at this church, as the church grows. Um, and I don't want only my views to be the pastoral views. But right now I'm the only pastor, so all the pastoral views of the church are my views. You know, I'm happy to, to discuss and debate these things, but then as a pastoral team, we have to speak and lead. And since I'm the only one right now, I'd have to speak and lead from where I'm at. I'll say this, that if the church voted that you couldn't do that, and I want to remain a member of the church to be in unity, I would not associate in that capacity with the person. It would have to actually come from the church as a body for me to go against what I believe. Like sure. All right. Sure. Right. And and you know, just to be honest, if we actually had that situation, I would not lead the church to make that kind of motion. I would rather let it just be a disagreement, and I would rather I I just publicly say what I thought on it and what the pastors thought on it, and then just kind of let it be there. Because to me, it wouldn't be the end of the world, especially if most of the church was obeying it. In my view, I still think. I mean, church is messy, right? It's, church life and sharing life and dealing with sin is messy. I don't expect everyone to agree on everything. And so I would just, I would, I would be okay living with the mess. You know, and when I saw you on Sunday, I'd still hug you and just, you know, say you're wrong. And, and then we'd keep joking around how we joke around. And, you know, we take communion together and, and keep moving on. That's how I would do it.